Welcome to the Moving Up Podcast. I'm your host, Christy Wilson, CEO of the Wilson Group Real Estate Services, and my passion is creating success in people by sharing my experiences in real estate, entrepreneurship, and community involvement. My partner, Heather Wombrode, and I will be hearing from expert leaders in these spaces and giving you practical advice to help you accelerate your business. So pull up a seat because we are about to have a lot of fun. It's time for you to move up. Here we are, folks. The day you've been waiting for, we have special guest Grant Hammond with Metropolitan Brokers today with us on the Moving Up podcast. Good morning, yeah. Heather. How Good are you? Good morning, Christy. Good to see you. And Grant Hammond, welcome. I'm happy to be here. I hope I live up to the hype. I, yeah. <laughs> well, you will. So Grant sat down and I said, I am so excited you're doing this because I know you, but I don't really know you. And so our listeners, me, Heather, We'll get to know you more and sort of pick on your brain a little bit today about all of the insights you have going on in the national market, a little bit about your background and all kinds of stuff. That sounds fun. I have an interesting origin story for sure. Well, why don't we jump right in? So, I think you said to me the other day that you didn't know I went to MBA. Yeah. And I did go to MBA. When we moved here in eighth grade, I started the junior school and I went all the way up until my senior year of homecoming, which was Father Ryan, where I decided that I needed to take a little bit back from Father Ryan because every year they had come to MBA's campus to the ball building and had dyed our cannons purple. Yep. And the year before they did some other things and I finally thought, you know, this is the time. They had just moved to their new campus. They had these beautiful ponds that had fountains in them. And I went and found some industrial red dye, maroon dye, if you will, and uh, poured it in there on Friday night. And so when they turned those things on in the morning, brew red. And what I did not know was that it was a brand new campus and they had a rent-a-cop that was walking around that campus all night long. And so they got my license plate number. And that Monday after homecoming, I got the call to come in and see the assistant principal or assistant headmaster. And uh, they let me know my service was no longer needed <laughs> at the school. So, so yeah, Your I had a Band-Aid year. year. The senior year, I had ah. a Band-Aid year at Brentwood. Oh, uh, my yeah. God. Can I just add some icing on the cake to that story? Sure. So, in 1960, my dad a proud graduate of Father Ryan High School, was one of the guys who started painting the cannons at MBA. <laughs> he used to tell us all the, oh my gosh, the stories yeah. that they, the pranks that they would play on each other. Yeah, and MBA really hadn't done a whole lot to counter the, the, painted the painting cannons. of the cannons. And the, so I the figured purple painted cannons. it was time for me to do something about it. And so I did. And yes, indeed, I got uh, caught by the rent And you got expelled. Expelled. Well, okay, let me also give you a little bit of background. In eighth grade, which was 1990, I set and maybe still own the one-year record for demerits. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this was the straw that well, broke the I mean, camel's yeah. back, perhaps? Perhaps. I, I think so. I don't think that Dr. Pascal or, or Mr. Joya could handle any more Grant Hammond on <laughs> no, campus. Yeah. So after eighth grade graduation, uh, I had to stick around for two days and help Laird mow the grass. 
that took me 14 more hours to work off my remaining demerits. Oh, my <laughs> word. This is good stuff here, yeah, Grant. I mean, you know, I was the new kid. So, you know, I was trying <laughs> to impress everybody. And I think I made an impression. You made an yeah. impression um, that they're probably still talking about. Uh, maybe. Maybe so. That's funny. I remember hearing about the dying of the pond. Is it pond or ponds? I was saying it was one. One big pond. One big pond right yeah. there. Yeah. And everyone's like, oh. I mean, I was just like, that's just what kids do. But I guess it's yeah. a bigger deal in today's world. Yeah. I mean, it, it maybe it wouldn't be a big deal if it was some kind of environmentally friendly dye that went in there. But this was industrial red dye that I actually got from the back of the eighth grade earth science book. Oh, you know, they have that teacher's version that has all the things you can order. Well, you can order 50 pounds of industrial red dye, it turns out. Yeah. So it wasn't RIT dye that you make your tie-dye shirts with. No, yeah. no this was <laughs> the real soluble. deal. Yeah. yeah, this was the real deal. And it was a koi pond. No. Yeah. <laughs> there were animals in it. I was not aware of that either. Okay. So it did have a detrimental effect on ah. the aquatic life. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's a good story. That is a great oh, no. story. Luckily, it didn't matter. You know, back in those days, after you took the SAT, you could send in the colleges that you would like to attend. And so I, you know, took the SAT. SAT, put the colleges I wanted to attend, and luckily I was already accepted to the places I wanted to go. Cool. So that All last good. year was just, you know, that was just fun anyway. See you, bye. Yeah. So um, Auburn University. Ended up in Auburn, ended up there with my best friend, roomed with him for four years, had a great time at good Auburn. Deal. Good deal. And you were a logistics major? Is that what I read about you? Started in industrial systems engineering, which is what my father was. And so in every great son, there is the following of the father's footsteps and organic chemistry just whipped my butt. Dude. I, just, I couldn't handle it. It was one of those weed out classes that was taught by someone where English was maybe their third language. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was, if you could pass that class, then you were definitely going to make it. Well, I think I made a 17 uh, in that class. <laughs> so I did make it to double digits. Yeah. <laughs> made it to double digits. And so I ended up in <laughs> logistics. It's in both the School of Engineering, Aerospace Engineering, and in the School of Business. And so it was a hybrid program that was right for me. And I ended up with a math minor in the process. That class sounds like my accounting classes at UT. I could not grasp accounting tax accounting i think i got a 17 they only passed me because they it was a husband and wife accounting teachers and they and i know heather's heard this story before they did not want to have me another semester either because <laughs> back then you literally called them at home on yeah. the phone and they had just had a baby and they're like if you quit calling us we'll give you a d i'm yeah. like okay. Done i'm in yeah. i'm yeah. in <laughs> what i learned from accounting was if you have a discrepancy you just use your good faith and put that payment on one side or another. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even have that. I was just like, get me the heck out of here. Yeah. <laughs> it's all debits and credits. Yeah, good yeah. stuff. Yes. Uh, so how long have you been doing real estate? 22 years. It'll be 23 years uh, next spring. So okay. it's been a little while. Always in Nashville? Always in Nashville. My first job was in California, in Silicon Valley during the, the boom, if you will, in uh, 1999 to 2001, when I burned out from being in the office for 60 straight days without ever leaving, because that was the culture there. I came back here and I met a gentleman named John Coleman Hayes, who was a commercial builder developer here at a local watering hole. And we spent a night talking and having drinks and just randomly at the bar. And I woke up the next day, recalled most of the conversation and ended up going and buying my first investment property. Oh! And so I started as an investor, if you will, 
And then I realized I was leaving some commission on the table and went and got licensed later the next year. So kind of fell backwards into it. Super. And who did you start with? Started with Realty Executives, right, which okay. was David Colton. Mm-hmm. And then he changed to, I believe, Realty Trust Residential, something like that. And I left and started my own brokerage in 2010. Got it. Got it. Do you have agents or is it just you? We have two agents. Okay. We're a powerhouse broker. Yes, you yeah. are. I, I remember those days when, it, when the Wilson Group was two agents, me and my dad. Yeah, yeah <laughs> so, two agents. Yeah, we are definitely a powerhouse there brokerage. There you go. There you go. So, One of the many things that intrigues me about you is you deep dive into the economics and everything financial in real estate. Just in, when I've seen you on panels, when I have read some of your blogs, all of that. Yeah, social media posts. Yeah, and you have a totally different take than most agents do. You, you do it very differently than most agents do. Yeah, I, I, somehow I, I, an economist is what I probably should have been, but I think it's the math background that I really identify with. And so I do love digging into what moves markets and why markets move. And uh, the real estate market is one of the most complicated markets on planet Earth. A lot of factors that affect it. And so it's kind of fun to figure out the puzzle and see which way it's going to go. So if you were meeting with a seller right now and they wanted to overprice their listing, what's the conversation you'd be having? I just close the door and walk right back out. Yes, smart. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of sellers right now want to overprice their listing. And overpricing, of course, is subjective in a lot of cases, but I try to make it objective and use the math to show them why they're overpriced and why that it most likely won't sell. But when you sell a house, it's such an emotional thing. A lot of people get lost in objectivism and it just goes straight back to subjective. Well, there's that one person who's going to want this exact thing that I have. Mm-hmm. And I just need one person, just one person, the yeah. one person mentality. And, and that just, that doesn't, that doesn't work usually. Well, I, um, that's funny you say that about you turn around and walk out the door too, because last night I was just working on some stuff and looking at the market and price reductions. I'm going, and I, t- I have this conversation often with myself. I'm like, never again am I taking an overpriced listing. A couple though, when we went on the market, I did not think we're overpriced. And, you know, there's just a, things are just a little bit different now, you know, and you really have to look at past numbers, current numbers, what the buyer pool is. And you've always had to do this. And what your seller's immediate needs are on getting to a closing. That's right. Yeah, there's there's a pretty big shift in the marketplace right now. And it's not necessarily all because of buyers. A lot of it's because of sellers. 84.2% have mortgage rates under 5% right now. So they can be a lot more patient. You know, those who have interest rates under 3% are never going to be replicated again. Even though the life circumstance says they probably should be a seller, they're not. And they're not going to be, even though they may be on the marketplace for sale, but they're not going to take a market offer for their houses. And so that inventory that's starting to sit and look stale and stagnant isn't true inventory. They're not really sellers. And I'm seeing a lot more of that. And from a buyer's point of view, that's like, oh, there's a lot of on the inventory on the marketplace. Okay, go, go buy that house. See if you can buy that house from that seller. And that dynamic has completely changed the way that buyers and sellers are interacting in this marketplace right now. I don't have any sellers who have those low rates either. I mean, there's just, they've been in their homes. My sellers right now are all normal sellers. They're moving for 
schools, their family has grown. It's just classic traditional real estate downsizing. There's no one trying to play the market, if you will, because I don't think there's a market to play for that very reason. It just feels like old school real estate. And for agents who haven't been in it for a long time, they haven't experienced that. Yeah, I I think the statistic is 70% of agents have not experienced a down market. How unbelievable is that? Yeah. I mean, you think about it. If you got in 2011, you know, in the past 12 years, you haven't. I've been in it for going on 30 years. I've never been in an increasing interest rate market. You know, maybe it's this, but it's never been that. So that's, that's new to me. The last time that happened, I think I was in seventh grade. When my parents bought a house at 18% interest. <laughs> so. I know. It is interesting. But I mean, if you're down at 2.5%, sure. 630-year interest, there's only one way to go. Yeah. That's for sure. The question is, where's the top? And that's really hard to predict right now. It feels like we've reached maybe the peak, but it also feels like we're going to be here for a while and that we don't really see any headwinds pushing rates down. I mean, the bond markets are a mess. You know, we're sitting here firing speakers at the house, and that really gives a lot of other people confidence in our marketplace. I mean, there's a lot of chaos happening behind the scenes. We're about to enter a very contentious elective season, so that this upcoming presidential election is going to be messy at best, and that's not really going to give bond buyers a lot of confidence to, well, let's go buy those MBSs in this country and park our money here those institutional guys are going to go and buy corporate bonds likely somewhere else. And so we're missing a lot of that activity. And at the same time, you've got the Fed on a quantitative tightening schedule, increasing rates, decreasing the money supply, not buying any mortgage-backed securities, and there's no pressure to push the rates down. I would say even a month ago, we were thinking, okay, by the end of the year, Q1 of 24, we're going to start seeing an easing of the rates and a going down. And now the majority of people I talked to were 8% for a while. Yeah. These jobs, where are all these jobs coming from? I want someone to explain this to me. 330,000 more jobs last month. Like where, where are those all coming from? Well, don't you think it's a combination of things too, of people retiring, people being fed up and business is growing. There's still consumer demand for so many things. Yeah. I mean, I know there is, but I don't see nearly as many help wanted signs as I saw a year ago. Well, this is true in Nashville. Mm-hmm. But when we see help wanted signs too, that's typically on the the server side, the contractors, stuff like that. I don't really follow, I guess, where big companies are hiring. Although I'm in this women's CEO roundtable and everyone's hiring. You know, they need more administrative staff, more marketing people, you name it, they need people. So I guess we're still consuming at, at a pretty high rate. Yeah. And that's what the Fed's gonna slow down. And so they're they're doing their darndest. They are they are definitely doing it. Sort of back to what I said earlier, that's one thing that's fascinating about you to me is that the way you look at real estate and the markets is that you're giving it such a different look see than the average realtor. The average realtor just, yeah, mm-hmm. are just yeah. thinking they're buying, you know, helping buyers and sellers buy and sell homes. You're looking at what truly is dictating the move of the market. I am, yeah. I, for whatever reason, that excites me a lot more than paint colors and floor plans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's just, it's interesting how everybody's background 
helps them shape of which way they're going. So do most of your clients, when you're saying all this to them, are they, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Or do they glaze over or what, what do they do? <laughs> a fair amount of them don't care. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> just, just sell my house. I'm, I'm around for entertainment purposes for, for a lot of those uh, folks. But most of my clients have gravitated more towards the investment side. And so we do have lots of good conversations about when's the right time to be a buyer, when's the right time to be a seller, and how long should you hold on to that asset. A lot of folks wanted to sell in in 2020, and aren't you glad that you counseled them not to, right? Because the peak really wasn't until spring of 22, and they would have missed 30% appreciation in that that period of time, or even 40% in some cases. And so that was when we counseled everyone to be a seller was in, I think it was February of 22. We said, be a seller. And a lot of folks, it was still going up at that point. A lot of folks say, you know what? No, I think we're good. We're going to sell in early 23. Well, you see what happened in early 23. It was just a complete stagnation of the marketplace and competition really became complex. Again, with these low interest rate sellers who really weren't sellers and these builders who had built some inventory and, and were starting to incentivize using all these creative 2-1 buy-downs or 3-2-1 buy-downs, which the first time I saw that was a few months ago. I haven't seen that. Yeah, 3-2-1 buy-down. It reminds me of that old show from the 80s, 3-2-1 Contact for Kids that you know was that after school Oh, there's just enough age difference between us. I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. It was, you know, it was the after school special in the yeah. 80s. Yeah. yeah. Maybe someone remembers the right. one contact. Yes. <laughs> Call us if you did. Email yes. us. Let, let's well, hear. We're probably closer to the same age, yeah. but I yeah. don't remember that show. It was awesome. Yeah. I loved it. It came on after Ghostbusters. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is like the mid 80s, like 85, 86, somewhere yes. in there. Okay. Well, yes. that's funny. This is a total rabbit hole, but a good friend of mine was a speaker at a women's conference this weekend and she sat with Melissa Gilbert who played Laura Ingalls in Little House on the Prairie and Mindy Cohen who played Natalie on The Facts of Life and I was invited to go to that conference but I was out of town it was killing me when she told me that's who she was with I'm going those are my people that's who I watched in grade school and high school yes every Monday night was Little House on the Prairie I think Tuesday was Different Strokes and um, Facts of Life (laughs) I'm going I can't believe it but sorry that was again that was a a Christy rabbit hole right there (laughs) those are all awesome shows (laughs) they are good so I'm going to flip it back to working with investors what are you seeing in the number of investors right now with, with interest rates being where they are with all of that? Are you still selling investment property to guys who are getting loans or is it mostly cash? Or It's still some 1031 exchanges. So there are still some folks that have sold some properties typically out of state in high tax havens that are trying to get into a better tax position. And so we're still seeing some of those, but not nearly as many. Let's call that 10% of what we saw two years ago. On the cash buyer side, we're still seeing those buyers, but let's call it 20% of what it was a year ago. And then those getting loans, oh, they've disappeared. Because you know an investment rate's gonna be above 8%. Your LTV is gonna be 20, 25%, unless you're buying as a second home. The second home buyers have all but disappeared as well. And it makes sense. You know, as, as things tighten up and as you start paying back student loans and you know, your your auto loan maybe went up to eight or nine percent, then it makes sense. You're not gonna reach out into the real estate world. But ironically, it's usually one of the best times to buy when it's the most difficult because you have the most negotiating power. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've seen that our investor pool has just not completely dried up, but it's very slim. 
The mean, professional investors are still there. The first-time investors, the mom and pops, the, those are the ones that have mostly disappeared. Hi, I'm Harry Allen, co-founder and chief relationship officer of Studio Bank. Studio Bank is passionate about what our members create, and we're here to support you through the process. We provide capital and services to build businesses. We offer mortgage and home loan options, whether you're a first-time home buyer or purchasing your fifth home. We work with artists to reach their audiences. We help nonprofits transform our community. And often, the most important work we do is simply empowering individuals to pursue their dreams. We're here because what you create matters. Let's create something together. Visit studiobank.com. Member FDIC, equal housing lender, NMLS number 1761767. You do a lot with short-term rentals. Do. So you have your own as well as manage for others or help? I don't manage buy? at okay. all. I don't, I don't want any part of that headache. <laughs> but we do buy and sell those properties. Yeah. What do you see happening with that in Nashville? Oh, that's kind of hard to say. Honestly, there have been 24 laws that have been put in place since 2016 to govern short-term rentals. We've had a brief respite over the last three months because we got a new council. They've just now been installed. Typically, they're quiet for the first couple of sessions, and then you start to see the bills. So I expect there to be some more short-term rental laws coming down the pike pretty soon. Don't know what they're going to be necessarily. I think a lot are going to try to address maybe noise things of that nature, which are very hard to legislate. There's not an entity that's going to come out and police noise. Yeah, it's not going to be the police. Yeah, yeah, the police have things to do, and it's not to see if there's too much noise in this particular house. And so it'd be interesting to see what they come up with. I'm sure some of it will be half-baked because we have a lot of new council people that have a lot of new ideas that maybe aren't grounded in reality. But there's some veterans on there too that I think are still interested in legislating short-term rentals in Nashville. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of the new council, the new mayor, the new everything, what what are your thoughts there? (laughs) So I went to high school with our mayor. And if you had asked me of the... 100 people in that class who would become mayor of Nashville. I don't know that I would have said Freddie O'Connell. He was quiet and studious and not loquacious at all. And it's amazing how different he is now than he was in high school. And I know that everybody changes from high school to now for sure. But after he went to Brown and came back, he was just a different guy. He is incredibly intelligent. I can tell you that much. And he is a little bit idealistic And so I do worry a little bit that some of his initiatives in transportation are going to be very, very costly. And I don't know where you grab those funds from in order to pay for those things. And so as long as we keep it in the bus rapid transit arena, then we should be able to handle that. But as soon as you start talking about rail or trolley or light rail, those things become incredibly expensive. And if you remember what... Mayor Barry had suggested, I think that ballooned over three trillion, I want to say, or three billion. It was, I think yeah, I it didn't go tri- trillion. It was it's billion. a trillion because it was a, it started, such a crazy number. Yeah, it started off in the millions and it went to the billions and then it was on up there. I mean, heck, just that goofiness they wanted to do, the underground tunnel up Fifth Avenue to from, gosh, let's say, uh, like Bridgestone area? Bridgestone. I want to say yeah. the Palm. Bridgestone. Yeah. yeah, going up towards the Capitol. I mean, that was going to be nine million, a uh, nine, what was that? 
nine i think with the undergrad expect it got up to five billion i think yeah. it was just three, no, three was, billion minus all the underground right. rail and then all of a sudden it was billions more for it was just an underground piece in our solid stone city that we live stuff in that would yeah. never make sense and yeah, that would continue that to happen? flood you yeah. know or seep water none of that made sense to me yeah so i worry a little bit about the transportation plan we haven't seen the full transportation plan revealed, but some of the rhetoric, rhetoric that we hear coming out of council members is a little bit scary because the last thing we want to do in a down marketplace is to increase property taxes. And we just had a pretty big property tax increase a few years ago, and that was a corrective move that really needed to be made. The metro budget was completely out of whack, had a lot of legacy expenditures that were not being covered. And the general fund was basically zero at that point. And so we needed to make those corrective measures. But now we're at the point where we should be functioning pretty well. We've got excess money. So we've made the Titans deal, which actually freed up about $500 million of city funds to be used in other things like education and homelessness and transportation. So hopefully we stay within the confines of that $500 million that we have to spend. But I worry a little bit just because... Again, I think Freddie is a little bit of an idealist, and he would want to have the ideal transportation system, which I think takes decades to build, and he's got a maximum of eight years to do it. He also has some pretty big homelessness initiatives, which revolve around housing, and as we know, building affordable housing is very difficult, especially if you don't have a public-private partnership, which we really haven't had much with the city of Nashville, and so until they come to the realization that the land they own needs to be put into a deal, I don't think we're going to be able to solve those issues either. I, well, I think in solving that, you also have to understand that a lot of those folks don't want to be housed. You know, it, there's just so much more to it than, you know, yeah, the, the, mental, the, the health, mental health it's, yeah, there's, situation. Again, very, very complicated. And I am happy to have this administration try to tackle it a little bit better. But again, you can get really far down the rabbit hole with these things and it's not inexpensive. None and of it's inexpensive. Anything it's inexpensive. you just spoke about is, yeah. So I just worry about property taxes uh, a little bit under the administration. I am not calling this a tax and spend administration yet. But I, I just want to see more of the plan. I did enjoy seeing some of the debates with the candidates. And Alice had, I'd seen the, when it was just her and Freddie talk about different ways we can get, you know, tax dollars that I don't think anybody else really knew about it. You may have known about it. But she had two other ways that you could create revenue through taxes without hitting a property tax. And I was going, why aren't we talking about this? I feel like Metro, our mayors have all been, and Metro councils have all been, it's property taxes, it's property taxes, it's property taxes without looking at alternatives. And that that we really need, I mean, I'm, I'm glad he brought Kevin Crumbo back because I think Kevin's one of the smartest guys out there. He's the smartest guy in the room for yeah, sure. Yeah, and, and can lean into some of that that Alice was talking about on creating revenue from other tax sources. Yeah, agreed. I mean, that's that's how the Titan Stadium deal got done. It moved from a general fund obligation of five, six, seven hundred million dollars to base a special tax district, you know, around the, the Titan Stadium and funded by increased taxes on hotel and hospitality. So let the tourist pay for it. That makes that makes some sense. Because 
those are the folks that are going to be using it as well as the citizens. And so let them share in some of the expenses. So the hotel tax went up a little bit, but the special tax district around the stadium where you're going to buy beer and food and popcorn and all that kind of stuff, you know, went up, you know, 50% or 50%, 15 cents. I think it was, it wasn't much at all. So instead of paying, you know, $7 for that beer, you're going to pay seven fifteen. So you're not really going to notice it. Those are the types of things that I think Alice was really referencing is doing special tax districts and things like that. And for the transportation side, Alice had mentioned TODs, um, transit-oriented development. So if you want to put in a new bus stop, let's say it's on Charlotte right out here, and you want a nice big bus stop and you want people to actually use it, well, people won't walk to a bus stop when it's 100 degrees outside if they've got to walk more than two blocks. And they won't walk to a bus stop that's not shaded. And they, you know, they don't want to do those things. They'll, they'll take an Uber or they just won't go in a lot of cases. And so if you will rezone the property around your bus stop as a transit oriented development, that gives you more density and more options to have a little market with some apartments on top or a little restaurant with condos around it. Or it gives you that opportunity to do a mixed use development like what you're used to seeing in cities that have transportation that works really well. You rarely see a bus stop in a desert that is full of people waiting to get on the bus. Like you've got to put the density where you want them to use public transportation. And we have done just a poor job of that in this city. And so hopefully the mayor will use TODs for bus stops or the Music City Star has been here for what, like 18, 20 years and ridership continues to decline and decline and decline. I thought it was going up. Well, (laughs) It's going up if you compare it to the pandemic era, so well, from 2020. Yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> but, I get that. But. but if you look at it, when it when they first put it in 15 years ago, ridership is still below where it, is, where it was when it first was introduced. And so more of that density at those train stops is the only way to really increase that ridership. And so you see a new development in Mount Juliet that they just completed that has that density And now you have more people getting on and getting off at Mount Juliet than you did before. And so same thing needs to happen in Lebanon. Same thing needs to happen in Donaldson. Same thing needs to happen at all these stops to make it more appealing to ride. I think it would be interesting, too, with going back to transit and buses and all of that. You know, we have so many of those double long buses and you see seven people max at any given. I never see a full bus. And granted, I'm not following buses around, but it's rare that you see a full bus. It may it would make sense to me that maybe you had more buses, but that they were shorter, you know, and ran different routes, better routes. Same with the Music City Star. I don't know what the situation is once it gets to downtown. Where are people going? Are they going to Vanderbilt? Are they going to the state? Are they going to Metro? Are they going to HCA? I don't know. Yeah, so Typically when you five get there, to six blocks. Yeah. It's all they want to do unless there's a, a little bus sitting there waiting to make the loop. That's right. And I'm like, is there a way to have those? just smaller little buses. I mean, I know the downtown partnership has theirs, um, which gets you to Metro and to the state and all that. Just thinking of who the riders are and where they need to go, because not everybody wants to go downtown. And I know, I have a feeling that's something they're trying to tackle. Yeah, the other amazing part is people aren't all going back to work still. And so you're trying to solve a problem where the variable of people using that transportation mode has decreased. Um, through that external factor of just of being Zoom or part-time in the office. And so they have more flexibility with when they work and where they work, which makes transportation even more difficult to plan. And so it's 
it's a conundrum wrapped inside a mystery and it can get really expensive if you want to go all out and try to fix it. So I'm just worried that that's the route that will be taken and that will come back to a tax increase, which will then affect all of us in the real estate business. Yeah. It's in Davidson County, hands down. It just seems to me, I mean, I love big picture. I'd like to see the big picture and then I've got four years to do this. Hopefully I've got eight years to do this. Any mayor, not just Freddie, but any mayor. And let we've got to start here and not start here. Because I think if he starts here, we're, it's just a, a mess because we can't afford it. Right? We're going to see. I mean, we will see. Freddie's but... not worried about using rhetoric. Because, I mean, you saw in his opposition to the Titan Stadium, he was willing to ignore facts and use political rhetoric. And so that's what, that's what makes me just a tad nervous. Because mm-hmm. I know he knew. Um, what the facts were, and but he decided to be a politician before a graduate of Brown first. Mm, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean. Yeah, well, I mean that lease. I was on uh, Metro Sports Authority for I don't know seven years, eight years, and that lease was bad that we had with the Titans. It was dirty. You know how much land we got back by getting out of that lease? I mean, there's such a huge redevelopment opportunity there now. Yeah, well, the East Bank is going to be amazing insane uh, yeah it, it will be beautiful and i can't say that i was for it because i feel like we have so many other things that need to be addressed before the titans i just think there could be more private money in that but that's just me but i think what it will do is going to be fantastic down the road the best explanation i got for the titan stadium on why the citizens should pay for the new stadium was that it would cost exactly the same thing to renovate the old stadium so there was a provision in the lease that says we have to bring it up to standards. Well, the, the pro build a new stadium people said that could be up to $1.2 billion. Well, that's, that's BS. It's not going to cost $1.2 billion. The real math was somewhere between six fifty and $800 million. Well, guess how much money we're spending on the new stadium? Yeah. $700 million. So we're spending the exact same Metro thing is, we right. would. Metro So yeah. not only that, but now it's not coming out of the general fund. Now mm-hmm. it's coming out of a special tax. Mm-hmm. The state's putting in hundreds of millions of dollars. And if the state doesn't, Bob Mendez, Mendez put in a provision that said that if any shortfall from that goes right back to the state, so they can't get out of their obligation now. And so the general fund now has you know, almost $700 million freed up now that they can spend on things that had to go to the football stadium under the old lease. And now it's paid for out of basically a special tax revenue that, so you've got all this money freed up that you can actually do these things with now. So I think it was, it was the only move. It was a great move to make. And any cost overrun on the project goes to the Titans. Yeah. They signed on the dotted line for the cost overruns, which is yeah. Also unusual. The education system, my gosh, I would never want that job to try to figure out how to fix that. Right. Well, it, it goes back to everything. It You got to start with bat size. We, we got here generationally bat to be for opportunities to be better. And I think, you know, if we could just start with something and grow out and give someone vision, people have such impatience with where they want the result. They want the result tomorrow. It's like, look, we're not going to get there tomorrow. This is going to be a 30 year plan, but in the next four years, this is what it's going to look like. And then the four years, and then before you know it, because think about it, 20 years ago was 2003. I mean, you were newer in the business. I've been in the business longer than 
you know. Yeah. I, I know, taught six, in Metro. Seven. I yeah. was at Park Avenue Enhanced Option just a couple of blocks look, away. I look back and like 20 years went by in a blink. Yeah. You know, so if you can like help people understand things can't happen tomorrow, maybe just set the stage just a little bit differently. Yeah, and, and schools drive real estate values too, as we yeah. know. And yeah. so, you know, for a long time it was Julia Green only. I only want to be in Julia Green, Julia Green, Julia Green. Yeah. And then it was okay, but also Percy Priest is yeah. coming up. I want to be in Percy yeah. Priest too. Right. And then it was you know, Greenberry. Yeah. Yeah. Aiken's looking good. Uh so does yeah. yeah. And so that has all changed a lot. What's not changed though is the high school level. Like what high school are you trying to get zoned for right now? Hillsboro? Mm. Not Any, n- none of them. I none mean, them. It, it is truly you get zoned for your elementary school because the L- our L- Davis Metro's elementary schools are good. Yeah. And you're like, please win the Hume Fog lottery and get yeah. me. Right. Yeah. That, that's it. My neighbors were all like, we're waiting for the lottery. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's a sad state of affairs for sure. Yeah. That's um, why the private schools can charge what they charge here in Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah. And there's a waiting list. There is. Yeah. yeah. Out, outpacing the rest of this part of the country by mm-hmm. a long shot. Is it really? It is. I haven't paid attention. It is. It is very that. expensive. I mean, it's, I mean, you can go to Tennessee cheaper than you can go to some of the private schools not far from here. Oh, I remember yeah. I, a friend of mine, I'd been out of college, I don't know, probably 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. And I was on this friend of mine's dad or something like that. And, he had had two kids, or one graduated from MBA, one from Harpeth Hall, and they one was going to Auburn and one was going to Ole Miss. He said, "Man, my kids going to college gave me a pay raise for being a parent in Nashville." Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. that was the case for me. Even uh, MBA back then, I think it was around ten thousand dollars a year in nineteen early nineteen nineties. And then when I went to Auburn, I was in the second year, I was able to get in state tuition, and it was eight hundred dollars a semester. And so, yeah, major, major pay raise. Major yes. pay raise. Major yes. pay raise. Indeed. Indeed. What's your favorite part about being in real estate? I, I can never boil it down to just one thing. My favorite thing is that it's always different and changing and no day is exactly the same. And I'm not going to go to the office and have to push the same sequence on the keys every single time. And my phone's going to ring exactly at 8 a.m. for this you know, managerial phone call. It's completely different. It keeps you on your toes, and it's it's a puzzle to always be trying to solve. Right. That you never get to solve, but you always get to try to solve it. So that's so funny. When you were saying what your favorite thing is, mine is it's all about solutions. You know, everything, there's so many mm-hmm. I don't want to call them problems, but just things you have to solve. Oh, there's plenty of problems. <laughs> like, let's, not, let's not kid ourselves here. There's there's life and death <laughs> issues that feels like on a daily basis. That's right. What about you, Heather? What's your favorite thing? I would say helping others. I just helped someone. We closed last week and she moved and the day the next day. And so she called me and she was just crying, just happy. It was kind of a rough road to get there, kind of some things she had gone through. And I thought, you know what? That's why I do this. Yeah. Is to help get her to a place she did not think she could get to. And so By it was... By solving her problems. Yes, solving her problems. <laughs> yes. So it, it was very rewarding for me. And I thought, this is why I do this. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Call ATA, CPA, and advisors to help you with all of your accounting needs. ATA can help you amplify your business with tax planning, client accounting services, advisory, and assurance services. Contact partner David Hart and the ATA team today at 615-662-2727 or visit atacpa.net to get started. Hey, if you're loving the show, 
We would be delighted to hear from you. Be sure to go over to your podcast app, scroll down to where it says ratings and reviews, and tell us your thoughts. Your words might just be what the next person needs to tune in and move up in their life. This show is edited by Elizabeth Evans Media. The Wilson Group Property Management Services specializes in managing your properties, including multifamily units and small commercial. We provide two levels of service, full property management, which takes all the stress and hassle off of you, or tenant placement only, where we find the tenant and you, the owner, self-manage. Visit our website today at wilsongrouprealestate.com and click rent to learn more.